Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the second half of my conversation with author Elisa Gardner, whose terrific new book is titled Magic To Do, Pippin's fantastic fraught journey to Broadway and beyond. On our previous episode, Elisa shared the story of how Pippin's composer and lyricist Stephen Schwartz first began working on the show when he was a student at Carnegie Tech, soon to be Carnegie Mellon University, where a very early and very different version of Pippin was first produced. Then, after graduating and returning home to New York, Stephen Schwartz began creating an all-new version of the show, but that quickly got sidetracked by Godspell. The massive international success of that little off-Broadway musical and its chart-topping hit song, coupled with his high-profile collaboration creating lyrics for Leonard Bernstein's Mass, moved Stephen Schwartz into the front ranks of musical theater songwriters and quickly led to Pippin being optioned for Broadway with a new book by Roger O'Herson and to be directed and choreographed by the then five-time Tony Award winner Bob Fosse. This set the stage for a now legendary behind-the-scenes power struggle between the 23-year-old Wunderkind composer and the masterful Broadway showman and hitmaker. And that's where we pick up our conversation today. Somehow, their contentious and difficult collaboration produced one of the most popular, long-running, and influential musicals of the modern era. And later in the episode, Elisa and I will explore the now 50-year legacy of Pippin, including how it has served as a tremendous inspiration to several generations of Broadway showmakers, and how it paved the way to the pop music-inflected musicals of today. Sky. 
So let's get to this conflict, because, of course, it's the thing most people know about Pippin. If they've studied, they know that Fosse and Schwartz did not get along during this project. But tell us the reality behind that. Where does this start and what is the main issue between them? You know, everybody has their own version of the story. Stephen will tell you, he'll admit that he was kind of young and headstrong and naive at the time. And, and that combination of qualities did not put him in a good position to deal with someone who has been called dictatorial. But <laughs> all directors are to a certain extent, as one of the people I interviewed for this book told me, every director worth his salt or her salt has to have a little bit of that in them. The truth is that Bob Fosse already had this incredible track record. But on the other hand, Stephen had this story that he wanted to tell, that he wanted to protect, and songs that he wanted to get across in a certain way, because there were songs that Bob Fosse had different ideas about. Not often. More often than not, Stephen Schwartz very much liked suggestions that Bob Fosse and his collaborators in the music department had say in. For example, No Time at All. I think Stephen had envisioned that more as a rock song, a grandma singing a rock song, that that would be funny. But Bob Fosse saw it as something very different, and obviously it worked. Throughout this interview process, there were times when Stephen would say to me, well, obviously Bob was right. Bob was right. You know, in casting Jill Clayburgh, Bob was right. That kept coming up. And I think you have a quote there. They're talking about No Time at All, and Stephen Schwartz is complaining to Bob Fosse about it, that it's not what he envisioned. He turned it into a vaudeville song and yeah. had lost the rock element. And Fosse said, but it stops the show. He was talking to a reporter at this point, and it was something like, I don't care if it stops the show, or maybe I should care. He kind of went back and forth a little bit. He was being interviewed right after a rehearsal that had obviously been kind of intense, and he was venting a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's ultimately said something like, well, I guess if it stops the show, I probably shouldn't care. Or yeah, something. Exactly. yeah. yeah. I think you're exactly right. This was, in a way, a torture for Stephen because he actually sees both sides of the story during a lot of it. Mm -hmm. He sees that what he wants is not on the stage, and he also sees that what's on the stage is pretty fantastic. Yeah, but there were things he genuinely disagreed with and had issues with. At the same time, that sense of wanting the audience to make an emotional connection to the characters and particularly to Pippin. Stephen felt that to at least some extent that wasn't happening or it wasn't happening as much as he wanted it to. And that Fosse was undercutting that on purpose to make the show tougher and less sentimental. Yes. To point up the coolness is a bad word, but the... Um, no. That's actually a good word. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah that, that's, that's right. That he was above the material to a certain extent. Uh, yeah, like a little bit of a wink, you know, yeah. always having that bit of a wink in his eye. And this culminates in Stephen either being asked not to come to rehearsal or deciding not to come to rehearsal. It's another place where you have different people tell different stories. Right, right. There was at least one case that Stephen Schwartz was ordered out of rehearsal. Certainly Bob Fosse spoke about not wanting him in rehearsal to several people. And I don't know how long he was banned from rehearsal. I do know that by the time they were in Washington, obviously they needed to work together. Stephen was inserting new songs and that's the kind of thing that the director and the lyricist and composer obviously have to be on the same page and collaborating actively. He never stops working on the show. In fact, On the Right Track, I think, is written during the run in Washington, I believe. Why be flurried? Flustered, keep those hopes aloft. Keep cool as custard, trying hard, stepping soft. There's no trick to staying sensible, despite each. 
that were introduced into the show in Washington. And I think that Bob Fosse was very pleased with both of them. Love Song was the other one? Love Song, that's correct. Yeah, that was just something that was better for a variety of reasons, one of them being Jill Clayburgh's vocal limitations. But it's a beautiful song. No one could argue with that. Well, and the lesson always there is you got to write for the people you have on the stage. That's right, you sure do. You sure do, yeah. Sitting on the floor and talking till dawn Candles and confidences Trading old beliefs and humming old songs And loving old defenses Singing a love song La 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 Love song La la Little jokes and silly pet names Lavender soap and lotions All of the cliches and all of the games And all of the strange emotions Singing a love song La 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 The show is very well received in Washington, to some people's surprise, mm -hmm. just because nobody knew what it was going to be. But it gets great reviews for the most part. For the most uh, part, yeah. Yeah. And then comes into New York with a lot of expectation, but the work continues, obviously. Yeah, yep. And then right before it opens, Fosse insists on a change in the show that makes Stephen crazy, also makes John Rubenstein yeah. very, very upset. Talk a little bit about that, because that sort of becomes an irreparable moment. Well, there had been, throughout the show, there had been little lines that were either given to other characters or that were played with in a way that they became more cute, more ironic, the kind of thing that Stephen thought... Um, more cynical. Yeah, that Stephen thought just didn't contribute to the audience's emotional attachment to the characters. And that kind of said, hey, look how clever we are, which wasn't exactly what he wanted. And the crudeness also, what Stephen thought was crude and crass. And then at the very ending of the show, it's literally the last lines spoken in the show. Pippin has rejected the leading player's bid to get him to kill himself. He and Catherine are standing on stage with Theo and Catherine asks him, Pippin, do you feel that you compromised? No. Do you feel like a coward? No, he says. How do you feel? And he says, trapped but happy, which isn't too bad for the end of a musical comedy. Ta-da! Which the ta-da is like a recurring joke throughout the show or recurring sort of thing that they do to emphasize, you know, this is show business, folks. Now, what Fosse thought that the but happy was a little bit much or a little bit 
horny. And so he wanted it out. And he told John Rubenstein this like backstage right before he was about to speak the line. John Rubenstein was not pleased. He did as he was told. He was not going to question his director at that point. But he feels the audience didn't like it. He said that the reaction was palpably different than it had been in Washington, where they were just elated at the end. He said there was a feeling of deflation almost. And he even said to Bob Fosse afterwards, see, I told you it wasn't going to work. And Bob Fosse said, it's in, we're keeping it. And that was the ending then during the whole Broadway run. Yes, it was. In Bob Fosse's production, any production Fosse did, like the one he did in Toronto in the early 80s that wound up on television, they retained that ending. But Stephen Schwartz actually, as I said, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. He wound up going to court to get permission to make creative adjustments. Not specifically that that adjustment or not only that adjustment for the future of the show post for the Broadway, future of the show yeah. when the show was published it was going to now be the way Stephen and Roger O'Herson wanted it to be as opposed to what had been in the script on Broadway that's correct and they actually created the materials that then were sent out to everyone else yes and then they evolved again because they came into contact with other directors notably Mitch Sebastian who created the Theo ending which is considered now to be part of what Stephen considers the definitive book of Pippin. When you rent Pippin now to do, you get mm-hmm. this new version of the show with the Theo ending in it. That's correct, yeah. Let's go back, though, just for a moment to the Broadway opening. The show becomes a major success, and I'm not sure everybody now understands what a big hit it was. Not overnight. It takes a little right. while to Yeah, yeah. The show was not an instant success. The reviews were mixed, it should be noted. Bob Fosse got raves. Ben Vereen did as well. Some of the cast members did. The reviews of the book and the music, particularly the book, were a lot more mixed. But it did well. It had some cachet. And it became a show that, you know, people wanted to see when they visited Broadway. But then what happened was a while later, the producers, Stuart Ostro and Bob Fosse, came up with the idea of making a TV commercial. And it was the first TV commercial that actually had live action from the show in it. It was the Manson Trio. It was that famous dance that Ben Vereen did with Pamela Sousa and Candy Brown. Here's a free minute from Pippin, Broadway's musical comedy sensation directed by Bob Fosse. That commercial just hit the airwaves and ticket sales just started booming because it was sexy, it was clever. Again, it's hard for people to imagine today that there were no commercials with live action footage from Broadway shows in that era. This started that. That's correct. And Bob Fosse wound up directing it. That was not the original plan, but the guy who they sent in to do the initial directing, the producer, Stuart Ostra, who was there, just was a little worried. He didn't know what he was doing with camera angles. So he thought, I got to get Bob here because at that point, of course, Bob Fosse was already a big film director and he knew precisely what to do. You can see the other 119 minutes of Pippin live at the Imperial Theater without commercial interruption. And the commercial is a classic. It won a Clio Award. People have told me, and I have the stats to bear this out, that sales picked up substantially. And not only that, but it became the show to see. You know, celebrities would come backstage. It really became the hot commodity on Broadway.
Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short commercial interruption. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What I really appreciate is that you don't end your book there. You continue with the story of Pippin post-Broadway right up to today. And it had several incarnations. I actually saw one of the national tours. I think it was a bus and truck tour of Pippin in Dayton, Ohio, which was one of the spinoffs of the Broadway production, starring Barry Williams as Pippin, who was quite good, actually. Oh, okay. People went in thinking it was sort of stunt casting because he was from the Brady Bunch, but he was actually fantastic. And then what nobody seems to remember is that Paula Kelly was the leading player. Paula Kelly, who had been a Fosse dancer, who had been in the movie of Sweet Charity, Uh leading player in whatever year this was, there was already a black woman playing the leading player, which I mentioned to people sometimes, and it doesn't seem to have gotten on the radar. When Patina Miller did it, this was seen as something new, and Fosse did it first. I did not know that. I actually did not know that. One of Fosse's tightest collaborators, Catherine Doby, had spoken about auditioning Debbie Allen yeah. for the role and not wanting her because he did not want a woman for the role. I guess this was a little earlier. But maybe it put the idea in Fosse's head. I don't know. Hmm. Wow. That's something else I have to update. Where was this again? 
it was the bus and truck tour. I saw it in Dayton, Ohio. But oh, this okay. was the Broadway tour, okay. not the first national tour, but what they used to call a bus and truck tour, the sort of more of cheaper, course, yeah, streamlined yeah. version of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So talk a little bit more about what happens post-Broadway. And the show becomes very, very popular, especially with professional theaters initially, and then every high school in America has done Pippin at some point. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, I mean, that's a slow process, too. I mean, it does not go over well in London initially. The first London production did not go over well. It did better in some other countries, and now it's performed all over the world. And yes, it is performed by high schools, by colleges, by middle schools even. Yeah, I think because the way one colleague of mine described it, which I thought was a really good point, it wasn't just that Fosse put his imprint so heavily on the show. It was that he made it the case because he did have such a strong influence on the show that any other directorial vision would shape the show just as strongly, if that makes any sense, that it didn't have to be his vision necessarily. So that means that you can have, you know, anything from a group of middle schoolers doing it to, you know, really shaping it for those kids, or you could have an avant-garde professional troupe. So it's very open to interpretation in a way, which is interesting. Your colleague is saying that's partly because Bob Fosse defined it so strongly that then it was ripe for other strong visions to come in or, yeah, or not I, so strong visions, I guess. Exactly. I mean, you know, I don't know how many strong middle school <laughs> visions there are, but they're probably great for middle school. I mean, it, it's a story about the journey from innocence to experience. And that is a story that, you know, anyone can work with. There are aspects of the story, I'm sure, that when they're done by kids under the age of 18, you have to kind of gloss over. And I'm sure that in most schools, they can't get anywhere near the Fosse choreography. But a lot of productions have been done at this point. Most productions without the Fosse choreography. So when it's time to revive the show on Broadway, this is a very different quantity. This is a show that a lot of people now go into the show knowing and having some experience and been in. Talk about how the revival came about. This starts with the Weislers. Yeah, the Weislers were interested in it. Obviously, Barry and Fran Weisler had done a bunch of very successful Broadway revivals of classic musicals, and they kind of sort of set upon Pippin, and Barry Weisler was in touch with Diane Paulus, who at that point had gotten rave reviews for production of Hair and, and other productions she'd done, you know, was really a hot director. They came together and they also enlisted a circus troupe known as the Seven Fingers. And just coincidentally, around the time that Diane Paulus had done some stuff for Cirque du Soleil, she had become interested in this other circus troupe that was very innovative that Barry Weisler had also been impressed by. And they sort of decided that this might work into a new production of Pippin. That the idea of these players being members of a circus and enlisting acrobats and people who do what circus people do to be part of the show. And of course, what's very different now is that Stephen Schwartz has to be very involved in the show and he is to a great extent a driving force behind this new production. As is Roger Hurston. Roger Hurston was still alive at this point and Stephen, I believe, was a little reluctant at first about the circus idea. It was not the first time anyone had run by him the idea of Pippin as a circus, but Diane Paulus, he trusted in her talent, he liked her ideas, they just got along very well.
But somewhat ironically, Fosse comes back into the picture, at least Fosse's work. They decide to recreate a lot of Fosse's choreography, or at least the style of Fosse in the show, which you would think would be the last thing they would do, at least that Stephen would want. And yet he's supportive of this. I think his ideas about Bob Fosse evolved. Certainly one thing that a lot of the dancers stressed to me that, you know, made sense to me when I went back and looked at a lot of Fosse's work just on video is that as sexy as his dance is, there's also a subtlety there. There's a discretion. There's a class. It's not vulgar. That's something they stressed. The kind of crudeness that Stephen detected in the original production was not really as much in the choreography. I mean, I've come across quotes where he talks about bumping and grinding, but he never mentioned that to me. That was not an issue as much as the language, the tone, the way characters were dealt with. So I I think Chet Walker, when he came on board, did not want to recreate Bob Fosse's choreography, but he wanted to incorporate aspects of it. You know, in the style does not mean a replication. They also had a lot of circus choreography, which was done by a woman named Gypsy Snyder, who was with the Seven Fingers. So this was by no means Bob Fosse's Pippin physically, purely. It had elements of his Pippin, particularly in certain numbers like the Manson Trio. You know, you can't mess with the Manson Trio. And there were other aspects that were Fosse, but it was not a replication. It seems like Diane and Stephen both felt like you couldn't do this show without Fosse at least being part of it. Well, she said, you've got to keep the Fosse in it. Oh, wait, no, actually, that was Stephen Schwartz who said, you've got to keep the Fosse in it. He, at that point, had come to recognize the elements that Bob Fosse contributed to it. When he revisited it around the time we spoke, he became once again aware of things that Bob Fosse had done that he wasn't entirely crazy about. But he recognized the genius for sure. We started talking about this. The ending has been controversial from the beginning, from opening night on Broadway. And this new Broadway production had an entirely different ending. Yeah, it's basically just the very end. Instead of the trapped but happy, which is a good way to end a musical comedy, Catherine's son, Theo, becomes the focus. And he starts singing. And part of what makes this work is that now they start casting Theo as a teenager rather than a nine-year-old child. I think he might have been like in early teens, perhaps. Like 12 or 13, I thought. 12 or 13, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So it's still a very young boy, innocent, as Pippin was, or as Pippin is when we meet him at the beginning of the show. We see him essentially being seduced, or we get the idea he's going to be seduced because he starts to sing Corner of the Sky. they can fly I've got to be where my spirit can run free gotta find my corner of the sky and the players reemerge get the very distinct idea that they're going to take him in and that he is going to go on this journey. Obviously, you don't see that happening, but it's very strongly hinted. So it's cyclical. The story's going to start all over again and then play itself out now with Theo rather than Pippin and then Blackout. 
That's right. And we don't know that it's going to be the same journey. Theo is not Pippin. We don't know how he's going to respond. We don't know if they're going to try to get him to do the same things. We don't even know if they're going to try to get him to kill himself. But the idea is that every person has this journey from innocence to experience. It's a lovely notion. I mean, it really is. And this is a new ending that was initiated in a production in London, a sort of fringy production that Stephen went to see and fell in love with. Yes, that's correct. And he had been in touch with Mitch Sebastian, the director, who subsequently directed another production that was a little less successful. But anyway, he had been in touch with Mitch Sebastian, as he had with a lot of directors. I mean, Stephen has been very hands-on, but he continues nurturing them. And he works well with directors. You could say that's ironic given the story of Pippin or that just he was a very young guy when Pippin started. And I think it was a real learning experience for him. So in your estimation, what is it about Pippin? You got to read every version. You got to hear every song. You got to go through the entire journey of Pippin, Pippin's journey, I guess. Why? Why are we talking about it today? Why is it worthy of a book 50 years later? What's the magic there? The magic is Bob Fosse and Stephen Schwartz. I mean, the magic of the original production, just the style. Style is too slight a word, though. I mean, it's not superficial. There's a soulfulness there to his movement. And even people who did not adopt that movement, even other directors, other choreographers, can't help but nod to him. I mean, it's all there in the idea of the troupe, the idea of the leading player, the Manson Trio. So many of the original elements that Fosse introduced are still very much part of what makes Pippin enduring. And the score, I just think it's one of the great pop-influenced musical theater scores. But there's so many musicals we've had in the rock era that are heavily influenced by arena rock. And they're bombastic. They're almost turgid. (laughs) Some of them, not all of them, even ones that I like don't necessarily have the sort of grace that Pippin has. There is a grace. That's the word that I keep coming back to, to Stephen Schwartz's music. Just something very lyrical and lovely. And groovy, too. He uses the piano. I interviewed Janine Tesori for the book. One point she made is that he uses the piano as a rhythm instrument, which is what it is. (laughs) And you can dance to these songs. You can't dance to anything from Jesus Christ Superstar. I guess some people can. I can't. (laughs) But I, I can't dance to most rock and roll. There is that R&B, if not technically, there's that danceability in the music. Otherwise, Fosse couldn't have done what he did with it. And you talked about Janine Sasori. This show has been incredibly influential on now several generations of writers, and you got to talk to some of them. Who were the people that expressed that they had been inspired by this show? Well, Janine Tesori, for one. Also, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul talked about how the song in Evan Hansen, Waving Through a Window, was very much inspired by Corner of the Sky. I've learned to slam on the brake Before I even turn the key Before I make the mistake Before I lead with the worst of me Give them no reason to stare No slipping up if you slip away So I got nothing to share No, I got nothing to say Step out, step out of the sun If you keep getting burned Step out, step out of the sun Because you've learned, because you've learned On the outside, always looking in Will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass 
That is the I Want song and how his music has so much provided a template for making character work and story work through pop-influenced scores in theater, making it all theatrically compelling. I think that may be Pippin's biggest legacy is the inspiration it's given to other writers who are now contributing their own inspiration to the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's been a, a hugely influential songwriter. And he's very generous with that. I know much like Sondheim, he has participated actively in encouraging the generations that have come after him and the songwriters. Yeah, that absolutely. Look up to him. Absolutely, including Justin and Benj. I mean, he was very generous with them. He's very generous with me. I mean, he spoke with me on FaceTime for weeks on end, just recounting these stories and patiently fielding my questions, even when I repeated them. His work is really a labor of love for him. I get the idea very clearly. That's why he keeps coming back to it. And the work is a labor of love, the musical theater. It's so clear he loves musicals. He may not always love Broadway, but he loves musical theater. Yeah, yeah. Well, same as me. <laughs> I guess same with all of us sometimes. Right, exactly. <laughs> Alyssa Gardner, it's been so wonderful to have you today on Broadway Nation to talk about Magic To Do, Pippin's fantastic fraught journey to Broadway and beyond. It's been a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed reading the book so much, and I know many other people will as well. I hope you're right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Patching the roof and pitching the hay is not my idea of a perfect day when you're extraordinary you gotta do extraordinary things if you find this podcast to be extraordinary i invite you to become a patron of the show by joining our broadway nation backstage pass club for a contribution of just $7 a month, you can receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of many of the discussions that I have with my guests. In fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the edited versions of the podcast. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans, that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgements of your vital support for this podcast. And if you're particularly enthusiastic about Broadway Nation, there are additional patron levels that come with even more benefits. To join, go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's supercast.tech, S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T. Or you can find the link in the show notes to this episode or in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, which I also invite you to join. Now it's my pleasure to give my heartfelt thanks to longtime members Elizabeth Troxler, Ellie Schaefer, Judy Hooka, Gary Fuller and Randy Everett, Steve Reynolds, Robert Braun, Roger Clarice, Chris Mode, and Neil Hoyt. Thank you so much for your generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I gotta be someone who lives all of his life in superlatives when you're extraordinary. You gotta do extraordinary things.
just tell me when the hell it is. Oh, give me my chance and give me my wings. And don't make me think about everyday things. They're unnecessary to someone who is very extraordinary. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.